Hey there, Romantics. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you'd like to support us even more, please tell your friends or your mom. And subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite listening app. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to give us some financial support. If not, we get it. No worries. All of our content is free for all of our listeners. Thank you again for your support of Womance. Thank you so much for listening. It's me, Morgan. And me, Isabeau. And we're here with another Wonus, and I'm pleased to say that we are at long last finally getting into the far more lucrative lane of true crime podcasting. What, what, what? We're also switching up the old dynamic because Isabeau, that's me, knows nothing about true crime. <laughs> and Morgan knows a lot. Oh, now I feel pressure to like give like some screed on true crime. No, there's no pressure. I think all of us like understand that like true crime is in the zeitgeist. I can name like four or five things. My favorite murder, true blood. That's not true crime. You're right. I'm already off. (laughs) (laughs) Vampires are not part of the true crime universe. What? But I think a lot of people do associate true crime with like serial killers, you know, very violent crime. But another important and interesting part of true crime, not victimless, but the bloodless crimes. And that's what I wanted to talk to you today about is actually a case that involves the lioness in her field, Jude Devereaux. What? What do you know about Jude Devereaux? I know that she wrote a lot of big romance books. She was heavy hitting at the time that our girl Kathleen Woodowis and Joanne Lindsay were heavy hitting. She had a lot of like corsage covers, having her name embossed and then like flowers and sometimes there'd be a secret opening and sometimes there wouldn't. She doesn't have a lot of like recessed castles on her covers like Julie Garwood, but you know, that's basically what I know about Jude Devereaux and her life as a person, but I know her books. Yeah, she's written, I think, around 74 full-length novels that have been published. I believe most recently she was published in 2016 with a, started a Pride and Prejudice retelling. She has a personal moratorium on historical romances, which is where she started. And Isabeau, my next question for you, what do you know about the world of psychics? Very little, like the John Oliver episode about psychic that Uh was like how big a scam they are. That's what I know about psychics. So I think that's pretty much it. Like, yeah, psychics are are known for being a scam. But as I started researching this story to share with you, I kind of discovered that it's really a tale of two parallel lives, right? Mm. Jude Devereaux and the psychic, both women who are like toiling away in these industries that are much maligned as... Mm -hmm you know, being a way of pure wish fulfillment, definitely an avenue that is more closely associated with women and is therefore more easily disparaged. And they got all kind of tangled up together. Should I begin at the beginning of the crime or like the very beginning? I think you should begin at the beginning. I am ready to be ensorcelled. 
All right. Well, the very beginning of this story, I think, is going to be around this same time of year, 60 years ago. Holy shit. 60 years ago? 60 years ago in Newark, New Jersey. What a town. This girl named Rose doesn't show up for her first day of third grade. And that's because Rose's life with formal education has come to a close. She is now a professional in her family business of being a psychic. Wow. So she's about eight or nine when she starts working with her mother, who is a psychic. Her mother's mother was a psychic. She's from the Vlox Romani people. People might be more familiar with the term gypsy, which is now considered a slur and a disparagement. Vlox Romani people are known for being psychics, and indeed Rose's family was especially well known. They had business licenses going all the way back to the 40s to operate as psychics. And her father was really a well-to-do landowner. He was very respectful in the community. He was a Romani judge. So that basically meant he would adjudicate things like land inheritances, even divorces based on the customs of the Romani people. And so there's a lot of things about the Romani people. They're a very insular society. A lot mm-hmm. of anthropologists attribute this to the fact that they were an enslaved society, in the case of the Vlox Romani in Wallachia, where like Vlad the Impaler was from, and Moldova, I think. And in the the 19th century, they are freed supposedly, and a lot of them come over to the United States. But because they were an enslaved people prior to that, they have a very rigid lifestyle ideas. You know, they have their own language. So these ways that they integrate, like the fact that her father owned land, they're also very loyal to their classical practices. What's really interesting is that back in the 1960s, when Rose didn't show up to school, there had actually been a movement to help integrate Romani people more into the United States public school system. They were definitely a part of the civil rights movement. So I got to read some court documents about that and discovered that concerns were having boys and girls in classrooms together after the ages of eight or nine, using public restrooms and eating in cafeterias. Cleanliness was a big part of the culture as well. And they were very strident about preserving their language. And so the kids need to be taught part of the day in Romani. Another thing that's interesting about that civil rights movement is that just like so many of the other rights that were won, they were almost 20 years later in the 80s lost again and so now you know we're trying to recover those same rights Mm-hmm. So some of the more idiosyncratic parts of this culture that still exists in America today include arranged marriages at what you and I would consider a very young age. And indeed, Rose enters into what she would describe later as a very happy arranged marriage at the age of 16. And it's at this time that she starts her own business, right? She's going to strike out on her own. She's no longer going to work for her mother. She's going to work as a psychic herself. In lots of psychic scam cases that go to trial, the defense lawyers will frame this profession as patriarchal servitude. The Mm. girls have no choice in entering into this family business. They have very few rights. Their spouse will be predetermined for them based on a dowry, even though they themselves are the ones earning the dowry. So, you know, kind of creates a gray area as far as guilt goes for what some of these illegal practices are. 
Interesting. So around the same time that Rose gets married, Jude Devereaux is graduating college in Kentucky. She was born and raised in Kentucky. She got married her junior year of college. She was on the varsity rifle team. She was a bit of a jock. And she was graduating with an arts degree in ceramics and fiber arts. So where do you think a young lady who has a degree in ceramics and fiber arts is going to want to move around 1968? Where do you think she's going to want to go? San Francisco. She's going to want to go to New Mexico. Oh, of course, New Mexico. So she and her husband move out to New Mexico. Amazing. She finds a great many other people have decided to be ceramicists and fiber artists in New Mexico. So she takes a job as a fifth grade teacher. She starts taking graduate classes at the University of New Mexico. Her marriage ends after about two years. And Jude is the child of big readers. She talks about the fact that before she was born, she's the oldest of four. Before she was born, her parents were involved in tons of book clubs. And so it's no surprise. I mean, I'm just kind of conjecturing here, but you're in your early 20s, you're divorced, you're living in New Mexico, you spent your whole life in Kentucky, you're going to run to the comfort of something. And so I do think Jude Devereaux was comfort reading when she said she would buy two fat paperbacks every weekend at the local bookstore. Oh, wow. Every weekend? Every weekend. God bless Jude. Yeah. And she would, you know, read them over the course of the week. And one week she ends up reading two rape sagas, as she describes them. So that would be like a Kathleen Woodowis. She reads two rape sagas back to back and she starts thinking, you know, how would I plot this story differently? What would I do instead of this? And so in 1976, she starts writing her first romance novel. She hand writes it out longhand. Then she pays a neighborhood kid to type up her manuscript on a typewriter. And she gets back this stack of papers, right, with like Coke bottle rings on them and all wrinkled because it's a neighborhood kid. And she puts that in a manila envelope and she mails it to a publisher. She didn't try to get an agent or anything like that. She just mailed it to one publisher and they get back to her and offer her a boatload of money and she becomes a professional writer. God damn, 1976, I tell you what. Yeah, so that was actually in 78. It took her a while to write her book, obviously. <laughs> Writing it out by hand. But so in 1978, The Enchanted Land is published. Do you know this book? No, I've never read it. It is still in print. Sarah McLean is blurbed on the cover of the most recent edition. Oh, wow. Can I read you the summary? I love reading romance novel summaries. It's amazing. A woman who could not be conquered. A love that was never forsaken. A land. Whoa. That will not be forgotten. Whoa. This is one of those Woody Allen New York City is a character type books. Love it. For beautiful Morgan Wakefield, the enchanted land is the ranch in New Mexico her father has left her. Oh, no way. But the only way for her to inherit is if she lives there for a year with a husband. And so Morgan proposes a marriage of convenience for a man she just met handsomely rugged rancher Seth Coulter. In Seth's powerful embrace, Morgan discovers a passion she never knew existed, and an unexpected new love blossoms between them. But devastating challenges and betrayal conspire against these lovers, and they will have to fight for a future together on this wild enchanted land. Totally sold. And also, new idea for episodes. We should do books that have our names in them. Okay. I super duper want to read about Morgan Wakefield and like I don't think we are going to 
to find an Isabeau, but I would settle for an Isabelle or an Isabella. And I know there are a ton of those. Okay, cool. I love this cover because it has a, what's that fabric called? An eyelet lace with a gold and turquoise belt wrapped around it. It's just a detail shot of that. That's pretty cool. It's cool. I think that her story is set in New Mexico. Well, I think, you know, you summed it up at the beginning. The rest is history. She becomes a superstar in publishing. I think her best known book, I've never read any Jude Devereaux, but I think her best known book would be Knight in Shining Armor. That seemed Mm -hmm. to be what got the most play. She got a Barbie playset based on two of her characters, which I'm going to, holy shit, post on our step back Saturday. She was also very well known for writing about creating like series around families. She's also going to later on, and I want to put a pin in this, become well known as like a pioneer in supernatural romance. Like some Mm. people attribute the trope of faded mates to her. So in 87... Wait, wait, I just want to ask a quick question. Yeah, of course. Anytime. So like when we say supernatural romance, are we saying that Jude Devereaux may indeed be like the forerunner of modern paranormal? Yeah. Holy shit. She definitely was one of the most public people to start incorporating supernatural elements into her stories. Fascinating. Yeah. I watched an interview with her. I think we would call her woo-woo today, just like me. I self-identifies as very much a Virgo. She's very spiritual and she's very religious also. She's um, very Christian. What kind of Christian? That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I don't know what kind of Christian. Isabel, you only want to know if they're Greek Orthodox. I don't think she's Greek Orthodox based on her real last name. It's not the only thing I want to know, but yeah, I'm always happy to hear. So in 1987, she ends up marrying a guy she'd been with since about 76. She actually met him when she was still married to her first husband back in college. They were both married to other people. Fascinating. They've been living in sin. Cool. Since 1970, and they decide to get married in 87. So one thing about Jude, so they live together in Manhattan in like a fancy apartment. When did she leave the desert? I don't know. So, okay, that's interesting, because, like, so far this has been very full and very rich, but, like, the move from the desert to the urban desert of Manhattan, that's quite a jump, but cool. I'm into this idea that she's now in New York in the 80s. What a time to be in New York. Yes. So she's living in New York City in Manhattan, and she has a really hard time writing. To this day, she says the best place to write is on a cruise ship, because you don't get internet so she goes on like around the world cruises she still hand writes out all of her manuscripts I love this person I'm so glad that you're bringing this into my life yeah she's remarkable she's like a really tough cookie and I want you to keep that in mind so okay she loves to travel so she and her husband go on a trip to Cairo Egypt and a bit of an extended stay longer than the average vacation probably because she needed to work and she comes back in 1991 and she's walking down the street across from the Plaza Hotel in Manhattan and she sees a sandwich board outside of a psychic and she decides to give it a shot because something cataclysmic happened in Cairo. She fell in love with her tour guide who was 20 years her junior and through falling in love with this tour guide she's decided she's in a bad marriage. She will go on to say he was emotionally manipulative, he was psychologically abusive, 
abusive. He was very controlling. He was obsessed with her money, which she had a lot of. And so she goes to this psychic. She goes into the storefront. She meets a woman who introduces herself as Joyce Michael. And she takes her back into a room that's about the size of a a closet. Have you ever been to a psychic, Isabel? I have. What was the experience like? What are some details about going to the psychic that you remember? So I went to the psychic in my college town in Missouri, and it was above the Chinese restaurant. You go up a hallway that feels very old. There are like all these smells of delicious food. And <laughs> you go in and then like there was like a velvet curtain behind the door. And then like there was a sitting room and then they took you back to meet the psychic in a much smaller room that was like very plush. You know, it's like everything's in velvet or velvet. It's also like overly warm. It made me sleepy almost immediately. And I think like that was sort of the intent. She did a miniature tarot reading and like I asked about my year ahead and she, you know, gave me some vague yet very specific information. (laughs) Yeah. Like if you work hard, you'll be happy. Stuff like that, you know. It's not bad (laughs) advice. It's really not. A lot of psychics, you know, we'll get into like the idea of belief, but a lot of psychics at least have an ethic of what I'm putting out to this person needs to be positive, right? Because they're obviously coming to me in a time of need. Things with Joyce Michael are gonna be very similar but different in a few key ways. So psychic sitting rooms are always bigger than the room where you go for your conversation and your consultation. So they're in a plush, warm, small space sitting close together. Mm-hmm. And they start having a conversation about what's going on in Jude's life. Jude Devereaux would later say, I want to get this quote. I kept coming back because she was listening to me. I've never been able to get anyone to listen to me. What a heartbreak. But it's also this really powerful moment, right? Just like the kind of forced intimacy. If you go to a psychic, you're expected to sort of bear some insecurities and Jude does that. And eventually, Joyce Michaels asks Jude, what do you want from me? And Jude says, I want a peaceful divorce. So over the course of this conversation, she's been able to own up to the fact that she wants to end her marriage. She wants a peaceful divorce. And Joyce says, I can help you. So there are two things. First of all, money is tainted and money is the root of all evil. So I will need some cash in order to help energize me and cleanse your future relationship with your husband. So $1,200 should be fine. For Jude Devereaux, that's not a lot of money at this point. She also says, your notebook is giving off some very negative energy. I also want to take that from you and cleanse that. Right. That feels a little bit worse than even the money, especially knowing that like that's how Jude Devereaux makes her money and knowing that she writes everything longhand. Yeah. So that's a powerful ask. I think you're exactly right, Isbo. It's almost asking more than $1,200. So it's sort of like... Yeah. $1,200 what? Jude says, I've got nothing to lose. Wow, Jude. Well, you think the money's going to come back. The journal's going to come back. It just has to be cleansed. I guess. I mean, that's an epic leap of faith. Like, that shows, like, where Jude is and how she's feeling that she's like, you can have these things. So she gives them to her. I already feel, like, on tinterhooks about what's going to happen to dear Jude. So pretty soon, Joyce and Jude are meeting five to six times a week. Fuck. For hours at a time. Oh, my God. But Jude's going through a lot. And so now Joyce has basically, like, one customer. 
No. That brings me to my next point. Joyce Michael is Rose Marks, as you may have guessed. But Joyce Michael is also all of the other female relatives who are working with Rose Marks. Joyce Michael Um. is an alias for all of the women who are working in this psychic storefront. Which psychics use pen names, nom de plumes, aliases, depending on how you want to slice it, quite a lot. And it's a way to like... Just like romance novelists. Exactly. It's a way to kind of continue that clarity, right? If you call the psychic, you have the idea of like one woman who you met with before. Hello, this is Joyce Michael, right? It makes sense, almost, that you would have just that one name for all of the women working for you who all happen to to be your family members. Okay. But Rose Marks herself has multiple clients, but then Jude is about to go into this divorce proceeding and she has learned from Rose Marks, I'll just call her Rose from now on. She's learned from Rose that her husband is actually possessed by the devil. She gave Rose a million dollars then to help her out with the divorce proceedings. And Rose said, you're not going to have to worry about filing for a divorce. And Jude said, why not? She said, your husband's going to at this time. And then he's going to show up at your apartment two hours later. And she was exactly right. She got the exact hour that Jude was served with divorce papers. I mean, that's insane. That's insane. That seems like something else is happening, right? And Jude, once again, has a lot of money and she's been through a divorce before and you know how terrible divorces can be and you know that she's anticipating it being even worse because she's leaving him for a man 20 years her junior. It's 1991, let me remind you. And so she is overwhelmed by this and she has a real confidant in Rose. And so she says, how much would it cost me to have you basically on retainer? Beck and call, be my assistant. How much is it going to cost? And Rose will later say she jokingly put out, you know, she was trying to be wishy-washy. She was like, that's going to be very expensive. That's going to be a really big ask. You know, Jude insisted. She was like, come on, how much? How much would you want? And Rose finally kind of jokingly puts out there a million dollars a year. And Jude Devereaux agrees. A year? A year. Annual salary, one million dollars. Wow, Jude. Wow. 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 Okay. All right. I'm buckled in. Where are we going? Like, that's a lot. So then Jude is going through her divorce and it's not going smoothly. (laughs) That million dollars hasn't been super helpful. I mean, he is possessed by the devil, right? I want you to think about this in terms of belief, right? You believe your soon-to-be ex-husband is possessed by the devil. Is it surprising that this is a difficult divorce in spite of the charms and spite of the work that your psychic is doing for you. No, of course not. In fact, it might require more money because he's possessed by the darkest presence in the universe. Exactly, exactly. So she gets this divorce settlement request from him and Isabeau, it is fucking nuts. It is so (laughs) nuts. Basically, he has gradually increasing alimony every year that they're divorced. Mm -hmm. He has no rights as like her literary agent or her manager. He hasn't been involved in her career that way. He did say that he was a research assistant for historical stuff. Okay. Jude denies that to this day. She says he had absolutely no bearing on my career, which is important. Yeah, I'm sure this would be important for both of them, him to be like, I was the research assistant and for her to be like, fuck, he was not. Yeah. So he gets like basically a first draft settlement and Rose tells her, sign it. Whoa. She says, you're not going to get a better deal than this because this guy's going to die in two years. You're going to be fine. 
Okay. So Jude signs this divorce settlement. This divorce settlement was so acrimonious that when Rose is eventually brought up on charges, they reach out to Jude Devereaux's ex-husband because they assume collusion was involved because no one would have signed that divorce settlement. Oh, no. But Jude Devereaux does. So two years passed. Her ex-husband is still alive, but Jude has other problems. Fuck. Oh, no. She has started a relationship in earnest with the man she fell in love with, and she wants to have a baby. Think about how fragile she was. How old is Jude at this point? She's 46. So she's having a hard time getting pregnant. She's actually had eight miscarriages. Oh, Jude. Rose advises her, you know what? You don't even want to have a baby until you sell this Manhattan apartment. Because if you have a baby, it will die falling off the balcony here. That's a terrible thing to say. Right. I just want to give you an idea of the kinds of conversations that they're having. Keep in mind that this is one conversation amongst hours and hours and hours of conversations. Rose would later report that she was lucky if she managed to get two days a month with her family after she's brought on retainer by Jude. And she also has other clients to work with. She's in high demand. I read a New York Times article about psychics in New York City in the early 90s. They were a big deal. Keep Nancy Reagan had just left the office with her astrologer, right? So a lot of people on Wall Street had psychics. A famous quote was, millionaires don't believe in psychics, billionaires do. One psychic reported in that New York Times article that she was charging $150 to $200 an hour to consult with people. It was a psychic boom. Another reason this industry is so like romance, it makes a lot of fucking money. But no one was really making more money than Rose. So eventually, Jude gets pregnant. So she could care less about her ex-husband. She has this other project in mind. She gets pregnant and she gives birth to a baby boy named Sam. Her relationship doesn't work out with Sam's father. That's okay. But then, eight years later, Sam dies tragically in a vehicle accident. So... Jude moves to Florida. Rose also moves to Florida and starts up a second business out there, a second storefront. She has to move to Florida because Jude is her number one client and she's contractually obligated underneath this million dollar thing or she moves to Florida because she wants to be closer to her number one client. Like, how's choice operating here? Well, if you go by Rose's side of the story, she wants to be closer. And a lot of people move from New York to Florida. It's true. They really do. They go to fucking Boca Raton, I think. The red flag wouldn't be that blaring, right? You've spent, at this point, 10 years with this person. Yeah, it's true. I was just curious about, like, how they're describing, like, this transition. Because, like, a move like that feels like a natural break. Yeah. Like, it could have operated that way. That's not how this particular relationship is going to work. That's not what happens, right. What they are engaged in, it seems to the outside, I think like a really elaborate, almost over the top situation, like an obsessive situation. But I choose to believe that you would move to Boca Raton with me. I choose to believe that you would give me a million dollars. Just think about like your closest female companions. Think about that, but also think about the fact that this isn't new. What's actually happening here under the surface is not new. This has been going on for a long, long time, this particular kind of setup. It's amazing to me that Jude, who suffers the uncalculable loss of a very wanted child. Yeah. And like her psychic either didn't predict it or predicted it wrong. And she's like, no, you can still super duper be my psychic. Like that feels like a real chink in this move here. 
Rose is two steps ahead of you. Oh, okay. She actually explains to Jude that her son is trapped between heaven and hell. No. And he needs a really powerful psychic force to pray for him. Okay, now this is not fun anymore. No. <laughs> like, it was, like, fun before, but, like, that one hurts. There in Florida, this idea has been shared with Jude by Rose, right? Meanwhile, Rose's children are growing up. She has to pay for their dowries. They're getting married very young, just like she did. Her daughters are also in the business with her. So I want you to keep in mind, Rose is a whole person as well. Because that's something that I think gets lost a lot in true crime. Like, especially in a case like this, there's clearly one person in the wrong. But that's still a whole and complete person. And I think we do, we always come by it honest, right? So I want you to keep that in mind. Although it is horrible and wretched what she told Jude. Yeah. So Jude doesn't really want to write. Rose encourages her to write, starts influencing her writing, starts serving as a research assistant and an advisor on spiritual and supernatural aspects. And that starts to imbue itself in Jude's work. But Jude will also later say that her work suffered because she was just pushing herself so hard to produce just so that she could maintain her gradually increasing alimony payments, as well as Rose. Those were her two big life expenses, and they were weighing on her heavily. Eventually, Rose starts talking about that she is powerful enough that she can control where your soul goes in the next life. And she is working on reuniting Jude with her son in the next life. And she also has discovered that Colin Powell is in love with Jude Devereaux. Oh, wow. Secretary of State Colin Powell. That is a turn that I could not have predicted in a billion years. Yeah. So Jude Devereaux and Colin Powell actually start an epistolatory romance via fax. Are you fucking kidding me? No, I'm serious. They start exchanging faxes. I love that it's faxes and not letters. I know. She writes out longhand. It makes sense for her. It does. I get it. I love her dedication to her form. But also Colin Powell. Like, what the fuck is he doing here? And like, it's the early 2000s at this point. Like, it's the lead up to the Iraq war. Like, he's just like hanging out in Washington lying. Yeah. Like, that's the Colin. Like, not the 1990s Colin Powell, who is like still honor bound and whatever. No, this is like, look at all these WMDs, Colin Powell. That's that's Colin Powell. Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. Holy shit. I mean, I get it. He was very attractive. I mean. And then later, Rose shares with Jude that Jude's soul is going to transverse into the body of a woman who has recently secretly married Brad Pitt and that they will give birth to her son. What? Wait, I'm sorry. Okay. I just want to get the math right. So Colin Powell's in love with her, even though they had not met, which awesome premise. She believes this and begins an epistolatory fax relationship with WMD Colin Powell. And he engages. Amazing. So that's happening. And then, okay, I just want to make sure that I've got this right. Rose tells her that her soul is going to migrate into the body of Brad. Brad Pitt's new secret wife Mm -hmm. and that because she will be in that body, they'll give birth to her son. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, but like what happens to Jude's body as that's happening? Like, is it just like a soul transference of like a particular moment, like of conception? Or is it like, like what's the reverb here? Like it's her soul split. What's the transference? Is her body sleeping? I have so many questions about the physics of this astral projection. Remarkably, that was not a central line of inquiry in the trial. Wow, missed opportunity. And I'll explain to you in a little bit why it matters that she was in this relationship with Colin Powell. And she eventually starts emailing with Brad Pitt. We'll start talking about why this matters. I mean, it matters just because, like, it matters to, like, know. Like, I feel like a more realized person knowing this. But, like, what the fuck? This is an insane story. How is this not a Lifetime original movie? Like, how have I not seen this before? Right. So, as you might expect... I can't expect anything (laughs) anymore. There's, like, all expectations out the window. Jude eventually runs out of money. Okay. And that's when their relationship comes to its natural end. (laughs) It doesn't feel natural to Jude. She continues to fight for this relationship. She doesn't have a home. She's living in a hotel in Boca Raton. She is, at this point, suicidal. She feels like she has lost the connection with her son, and she's starting to feel like she may have been scammed, and she gets a knock at the door, and it's a detective. I want to read to you uh, what she had to say about this experience. I want to get this quote. All right, so the person knocking on her door is a man named Detective Stack, Charlie Stack. He is the head of Operation Crystal Ball. First of all, that is a romance novel if I've ever read one. Right on the nose with that one. Charlie Stack, agent of Crystal Ball. Devereaux would tell APC News later that he is the hero in all this when he found me after much searching. I was in a hotel room, days away from suicide. No made-up hero in any of my romantic novels is as great as Charlie is. He has saved a lot of us from what the gypsies did to us. So Operation Crystal Ball was an investigation into Rose Marx's family. It was not the first time the Marx family had been investigated. The San Diego Marx family was actually also investigated in 1995. Now, you may be thinking it's not illegal to be a psychic. And you're right. Yeah, you told me about the licenses dating back all the way to the 40s, so like... Yeah, yeah, you just have like a regular old LLC to be a psychic. And it's not illegal for a lot of reasons. One of the key reasons being a psychic, even if you tell someone something is going to happen and it doesn't come true, you don't really have a legal leg to stand on because socially we've been acculturated to understand that if you go into a psychic, right, you're entering some murky territory. It's not real is the standard understanding. So it's very difficult to prove that it's a scam. The other reason it's difficult to prove or to describe it as a scam is because if you think about the Madoff scam... Mm-hmm. Like the average lay person doesn't understand how stocks work. We don't understand how high-end art works, how you buy that, right? So that would count more as like pulling the wool over someone's eyes, right? But we supposedly, as human beings, we understand how psychics work, which is to say that they don't. And if you go to a psychic, the vast majority of people don't take it that seriously, right? The vast majority of people aren't going to enter into a 17-year, $1 million a year relationship with their psychic. It's not unlike buying a lottery ticket. It's like, well, who are you? hurting. Exactly. It has a lot to do with belief, but it also has the side of like religion and belief. 
So a lot of attempts to make fortune telling illegal have been struck down as unconstitutional because of this. And they've been trying to make fortune telling illegal for, you know, when in the 19th century, when the Romani people first started entering the U.S. It's very different in Europe, but over here in the United States, we tend to take people very seriously when they say something is a part of their faith, or at least give them the benefit of the doubt. According to an L.A. Times reporting on the 1995 case, they gave a basic overview explaining that the Romani people immigrated to Eastern Europe from India and from there to the New World. Immigrated is incorrect. They were enslaved. The early gypsies were nomadic, tribal, and patriarchal. Language is an offshoot of Sanskrit. Religion has elements of Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and Zoroasterism. The Romani word for fortune teller literally means healer, according to this professor named Hancock, who they quoted. Although Romani people's beliefs have changed over the centuries, there has been a continuum of belief in fortune-telling and spiritualism. In America, fortune-telling has not been as respected, and there have been cultural clashes with authorities. In fact, the belief that gypsies can inflict and remove curses, Hancock said, may have begun as a self-protective device as gypsies suffered hostility and threats when moving from country to country. In San Diego, one selling point the Marxists allegedly used with prospective customers is that only gypsies can remove curses and locate the source of negative energy. And there's lots of like folk tales revolving around the crucifixion of Christ that justify this. One of the first peoples that were attacked by the Nazis were the Romani peoples in Germany. When I lived in Ireland, I was shocked by the amount of antipathy felt towards travelers in that country. And so like, it's hard to say this is a scam even. Part of me believes that Rose believed in what she was doing, although there's going to be some evidence that that's not true. You think about Jude's relationship with Rose and how complicated that was, employer and employee, but also this kind of close friendship. Rose missed most holidays with her family to spend with Jude. She would later go on the stand and say, yeah, I made a million dollars a year and it wasn't enough for everything I was doing. And it is this question of like, what is women's labor worth, right? I was just about to say like emotional labor of that kind where you're spending like six and eight hours every day, like 28 days out of the month. Like I'm exhausted thinking about it. Well, it turns out that actually Jude, although she is going to be the central person in this trial, she's not the only victim of Operation Crystal Ball. In fact, there were 18 plaintiffs who told similar stories. Lawyers, a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. One woman was on vacation from England in Manhattan and she was in a very similar marital strife to Jude and she just popped into the psychic and started this years-long relationship. The reason they were able to bring her up on charges in this case and successfully take her to trial was because they were able to prove a very kind of old, long-standing scam. Basically, it involves imbuing an object with value and then you give it to the psychic in order to have it cleansed. So the idea being like the psychic is doing this work for free. You're only paying for their time in the consultation. They're going to take this object or sometimes it's money and cleanse it and then return it to you later on. It can be literal. For example, the Marx family would tell someone that money is the root of all evil like they did with Jude Devereaux. Give me 25,000, I'll cleanse it, I'll return it to you. In other instances, it's more symbolic. So in one instance, another plaintiff was told uh, she had to purchase a Cartier watch. Once she bought the watch, Joyce Michael told her that she needed to work on the watch to turn back time and bring back a lost love. Wow. She never returned the Cartier watch. 
So in another case, a woman ended up spending $400,000 on 32 gold coins, one for each year she had been alive, and gave that over to Joyce Michael. Over the course of the trial, Jude Devereaux's husband is called up as a character witness. He's actually pretty kind to Jude. She has nothing nice to say about him, but he's actually... This is her second husband who has all of the alimony money. Well, no fucking wonder he has okay things to say. Fuck that guy. Exactly. So he's, you know, he talks about the fact that she She's obviously resistant to paying the alimony. There have been a couple of times that they almost went to trial, but she would always cough up the cash at the last minute. But he says the only time he heard about Joyce Michael, which by the way, Rose is known as Joyce Michael to Jude throughout this whole thing. I don't know if Jude told Joyce, air quotes, her real last name. I don't know what kind of relationship. I find that interesting. But anyways, Mm -hmm. so the only time he heard about Joyce Michael, right? This is him in his testimony as far as like he wasn't colluding with these people. He says the only time he saw the name Joyce Michael was when he saw a signed check stub from Jude to a Joyce Michael for $400,000 with research in the memo line. Now that fact is meant to point out that like Joyce Michael aka Rosemarks wasn't running that scam on Jude. And in fact, Jude was pretty much her only client for the last few years. But Rose is brought up on 61 counts. Charges included conspiracy, mail fraud, wire fraud, and money laundering. So Mm. the men in her family were running a money laundering business through the psychic fortune Mm -hmm. tellers as well. Her son was convicted and sent to prison. Rose's niece, who had been writing those faxes as Colin Powell and Brad Pitt. Oh, no! Yeah, she got full immunity in exchange for testifying. She said in her testimony that Rose had told her Jude had asked for this experience as a writing exercise. And so she's totally off the hook. What did Jude say about that? Most of the information that I have, I wanted to keep it to like the trial and stuff Mm -hmm. and like actual Mm -hmm. commentary on that. And obviously this stuff is really difficult. And I want to talk about how brave it was for Jude and these other 18 women. One of the reasons Detective Stack says it's so hard to get convictions is that people are embarrassed. They don't want to come forward and talk about this. But, you know, all of these women who did come forward, who did testify, especially Jude Devereaux, with her name, with her reputation, and of course every Every article has to say something shitty about romance whenever they talk about her. But think about how incredibly brave you have to be to go up there and lay out all of the personal reasons you were victimized, lay out all of the stuff you were tricked into believing, right? While the psychic's niece is like, I was Colin Powell, I was Brad Pitt. But I also want to talk about the fact that Rose, keep in mind, you know, Jude has said throughout this, like, I don't want money. The money I'm maddest about is my divorce settlement. I do feel like she owes me for that. I think they ended up renegotiating the divorce settlement after the dust settled on this. Thank God. But, you know, she was like, getting back the money isn't important to me. I just need her to be convicted. And so I'm not sure how responsible Rose was for the fraudulent. I mean, I know she was the boss, right? She was in charge of what all of her like nieces and daughters and daughters-in-laws and other family relatives were doing as Joyce Michael. But she was the only person to take the fall besides her son. She took the hit. She's 66 years old. She goes to prison for 25 years. Shit. She lost her first appeal. She tells people she's going to write her autobiography in prison. She chooses not to do that. Instead, she writes a dictionary of the Vlox Romani language 
language, which did not exist in English to Romani translation that includes things like idioms, which I think is actually pretty productive. Yeah, that's a really excellent use of time. And like something else that I was wondering, I know that Jude Devereaux is a white woman. I'm curious about the other victims, because like it seems to me for 25 years and only one person taking the 61 counts on the nose that like if a white psychic had been convicted that they wouldn't have gotten 25 years and if they had they would have gotten out on appeal for good behavior. It's really interesting Um, I just listened to a podcast about the Miss Cleo psychic Mm. hotline scam Mm -hmm. which is about just keeping people on the phone and billing their phone company but it's really interesting in 1995 when the Marx family in San Diego was on trial their defense lawyer says nobody's suing the psychic friends they're not doing anything fraudulent which I thought was really like <laughs> hindsight's 2020 but the thing is is like this sort of experience happened to not just Jude Devereaux and not just this one case with like 18 total plaintiffs this sort of thing happens quite often and whenever you read the other trial transcripts defense lawyers will bring up stuff like I mentioned in the beginning like these women did not have a choice to enter this role they're uneducated they are married at the age of 16 they are culturally isolated because of differing norms and you know civil rights stop short for them in a lot of ways I read something really interesting about the Romani people tend to whenever they're going up for jobs they'll choose to self-identify as Latinx or Indian or Native American in order to get those jobs whenever asked about their ethnicity. It is like you're out of options and you find this way to be really lucrative and provide for your children and it feels like a relationship. One thing Rose said is like she was very hurt by the fact these charges were brought up because she was like, these aren't people who, you know, I met in an alleyway and stole their money. I knew these people for 20 years, 30 years. She said she was very close to these people. She talked about going to see Passion of the Christ with Jude Devereaux and going shopping with her. It's just one of those things where I understand exactly where the charges for like, because, you know, she would take take the money and she wouldn't give it back. And once people ran out of money, they'd be like, hey, I need my, you know, $25,000 I gave you to cleanse. And she'd be like, the money's not here and just hang up on them. She got recorded with some of those calls. And that's a big part of Operation Crystal Ball. And another big part of it is the fact that someone very public was willing to come out and testify against them and deal with like seeing their ex-husband in pretrial hearings and things like that. Even though we have this like very neat clothes, I still don't feel satisfied by the way that this rounded out. Like, and a lot of times when I read true crime stories, I'm like, oh, okay, like, the investigation was able to do this, the trial was able to prove out this, and now someone is serving, right, time for what they did. There's something still sticky here. Is that just me? Do you feel some stickiness here after hearing the story? I mean, thank you for sharing the story with me. I'm not going to lie. I'm really disappointed that it wasn't Colin Powell. You really... That it was her niece instead. That was really good. I I really believed. But imagine! Imagine how you would feel. (laughs) I wanted you to feel swept up. I was. I was swept away. And I think, like, this feels to me not unlike stories around cult leaders. Mm -hmm. And when people sort of, like, wake up 
from the buzz or like the thing that like had them ensnared. Like that's what this sounds like to me. And I understand what you say when you say like, doesn't this feel sticky? Like Rose Marks didn't have a formal education after third grade. She was quite savvy and smart and she was looking out for her family. And keep in mind, she was paying rent on a pre-war building across the street from the plaza before Jude Devereaux walked in. Showed up, yeah. And the fact that like she was spending this inordinate amount of time, right? So then not only does this become like who is Rose Marks that she was able to get this money out of people, like what kind of con artist, but also part of a good con is being a good listener and not always manipulating someone, right? Like people can't feel manipulated to be manipulated because once they feel it, like the jig is up. And like, I think where it's like, I don't know, 25 years seems like a long time, but it's a ass ton of money. So like, I don't know. And like the thing that really just broke my heart was that whole thing about Jude Devereaux's dead son. Like, that's some dark business. And, like, that's a wound that shouldn't be exploited. Whenever I hear about that, like, you know, Harry Houdini loved to expose charlatans and clairvoyants who said that they could talk to the dead. Like, that's how he spent his off hours when he wasn't escaping stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's because he so desperately wanted to, like, have a connection to his dead mother. And, like, how important would that be if you could and, like, interact with someone that had died that you loved? And the fact that people do exploit that always makes me feel really bad. Like that is something that does indeed feel like while there isn't anything in the criminal statute for that, that kind of feels like there should be. Like you shouldn't be able to exploit that kind of pain. It's definitely wrong, right? There's something wrong about it. It's not illegal. It's not illegal. And like that feels weird. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. You know, I do understand like once she asked for money back and did not get it, that's the point at which something becomes illegal. But having to testify on all of these other aspects of the relationship with Rose is so interesting. So Devereaux wrote a book called Scarlet Nights, which has some mystery elements in it, and she based a villainess called Mitzi on Marx and laid out how the whole scam worked, which also kind of brings up this question of, of what is the function of romance. But I also think it's interesting to think about, like, what would Devereaux's legacy be if she hadn't met Rose? How would her work have been different? I mean, it's silly to ask these what-ifs, but someone who has such an outsized influence on romance and someone who had such an outsized influence on Jude Devereaux? It's a really interesting question. And I think this story about Rose really speaks so much to oppression of women and the ways in which we, you know, marshal the tools that we're given in really destructive ways towards one another. I mean, you know, a million dollars a year isn't really a question of survival, but I'm sure it feels like it in the moment. Yeah. And I also come back to this question of spirituality and religiosity. Like, how much of it did Rose truly believe in? Yeah. I think it's just an absolutely fascinating case. I wasn't expecting it to be as interesting as it was. I saw something on the Daily Mail about how Jude Devereaux gave a Romani, they didn't say that, woman, like $20 million cash. They said in St. Patrick's Cathedral, because I guess it's close to the place in Manhattan. But I was just like, this is nuts. And then you go into it and it it's so much more archaic and so much more over the top and like a can of worms than you would ever expect. 
I think that's exactly right. I feel enlightened and a little bit sad. And that's how a lot of good stories should feel. Yeah, that's that's true crime. I hope you feel empowered. I mean, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with going to a psychic because it does feel good to sit in that warm room across from someone and they gently touch your palm, maybe. Yeah. I remember when I go, whenever I go to a psychic, I insist on a palm reading. <laughs> I get the ASMRs. No, and like this doesn't discourage me like if I ever wanted to go to a psychic again. But like I also like I'm not treating it as a religious experience. I'm treating it like as a treat for myself, not unlike getting my nails done. And not every psychic is going to run this particular, even if you believe <laughs> like this is a particular kind of scam. Yeah. Joyce Michael did not bring up cleansing cash with every person who walked through the door. They did it with every vulnerable person who walked through the door. That's predatory. Yeah. But I think we do have to think most of the time when crime happens, it's not some monster. And it's not a secret monster either. It's a person with the same kinds of if-then motivations that you and I have that got me to go to grad school could get someone else to run a $20 million scam on a woman's life over the course of 17 years. Yeah. That need to move on, to survive, to keep pushing forward. I'm really sad that it wasn't actually a Colin Powell, though. Can I tell you some Jude Devereaux facts I learned along the way that I think are fascinating? So she still handwrites out all of her novels. Good for her. She's doing well nowadays to help keep up her strength. She goes to boxing gyms. And she has a really mean right hook, so she actually helps training new boxers by punching them in the stomach. And then she also stands on a crate because she's so short to help with ducking exercises. So she's also doing training at her boxing gym. She still lives in Florida. She's still writing romance novels. She still really enjoys adding a supernatural twist to things. And I just want to speak to her huge influence. Like I said at Mm -hmm. the beginning, she's written over 70 full-length romance novels. Over 60 million of her books are in print. Her first novel was republished. It has a Sarah McLean pull quote on the cover. She was described by NPR as one of the Holy Trinity J's of romance novels. A lot of tropes can be attributed to her. And just like a lot of the other women that were in this court case with her, she's a strong, smart person. And more than that, highly influential. And I have to say, once again, because I don't think it can be overstated, so brave for participating in this trial and testifying against Rose Marks. Did she and Charlie Stack stay in contact? I don't know. Maybe we should fax her and ask. We should fax her longhand, be like, hey, how'd Charlie do? How'd Charlie do? How's Charlie doing? Charlie was like a little bit condescending. He made a big thing about how like, this is a con. People should take psychic cons as seriously as they take other kinds. And then he was like, I don't care how stupid what they believed in was. I'm like, Charlie. Charlie, you could do better than that, Charlie. Come on, Charlie. Colin Powell is, Jude Devereaux is out of his league, if anything. Yeah, thank you, right? Like, especially after everything came out and there were no WMDs. It's like, I bet he was looking for a friend. Exactly. Morgan, thank you. This was an unimagined pleasure cruise of <laughs> whirls and twirls and thrills. I, yeah. I loved every minute of this romance true crime. I did too. And thank you guys for listening. And maybe we'll do this again with another romance true crime some other time. Mm-hmm. But with that, loosen your woes. But never your nusses. Mwah! Mwah. 
Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabeau. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womanspodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah.